Well, a huge welcome to my Building British Brands podcast. I'm Justin Levine. This podcast is all about getting to meet entrepreneurs behind the scenes, the entrepreneurs that are the architects of some of the great British brands. And I get out and see them in their companies. And these are manufacturing companies all the way through to businesses on the high street. And I ask them the questions that you would want to ask. And that is, how do you build a great British brand? So all of the people I'm meeting are people that have built businesses from scratch and taken them all the way through to, in some cases, large, sometimes huge global companies. The show notes, including all the links, can be found at my website, thenonexecutive.com, and of course here at iTunes. And don't forget, please do join me on Twitter, at thenonexecutive, or feel free to visit me on LinkedIn. If you type in Justin Levine, you're bound to find me. So thanks for stopping by, and uh, let's get the show started. So welcome to the Building British Brands podcast. I'm Justin Levine. Today I visited the Bremont Watch Company up in Henley-upon-Thames. Bremont is... Uh, a world-famous manufacturer and designer of watches, uh, some lovely watches, in fact. And I met with Giles English, who's uh, together with his brother Nick English, has created this business from scratch in only the early 2000s. It was a fascinating. I met uh, both guys some years ago when the business was much smaller, and I've seen it grow from strength to strength. And Bremont watches can now be found on the wrists of multitudes of A-list celebrities. Every time I open GQ, Esquire, Vogue, I see some famous celebrity wearing a Bremont watch. Um, the America's Cup, uh, the Boeing Aircraft Company, Jaguar Cars, Norton, all of these companies have partnerships with Bremont and fit their watches inside their technology. So they really have achieved a huge amount from a standing start. And despite some tragedy in, in, in the the family, because the father was sadly killed in an aircraft accident many years ago with Nick, his son Nick, uh, who survived with 30 broken bones. And it was shortly after that that Nick and Giles created Bremont. So I really wanted to get together and find out what it takes to create, you know, a successful brand. So uh, Giles has given us a very poignant interview talking about some of the events in his life and, more importantly, is what it takes, some of the hints, some of the tips on how to create not just a good watch company, but how to create a great manufacturing company. And it was an absolute joy. It's one of my favorite interviews this year. So with no further ado, uh, this is Giles English of the Bremont Watch Company. When I say the word successful, who is the first person that comes to mind and why? For definition of success, Mm. I suppose for me, um, my father, and so much of my story goes back to my father. He, uh, PhD aeronautical engineer from Cambridge, um, loved building things, built his own engineering business, built a small aviation business, um, got cancer when he was quite young, in his late 30s. Mm. Um, Got over the cancer and managed to retire at the age of 38. Um, uh, with enough money in his bag to go really enjoy himself. And he, in his life, he built a boat that he, we went and lived on. He built aircraft. He built musical instruments. I mean, this guy was a genius. Mm. Yet, as a commercial businessman, he was very successful. But he really, for him, it wasn't about money necessarily. It was about getting to a point so he could enjoy his life. And I think that I come across... There's definitely two different sets of businessmen. One where it's all about money, mm-hmm. and the other it's about life experiences, and uh, it, it depends what drives you really. 
That's interesting. It, it, do you mind me asking, in terms of your father, was that, in terms of his background, you know, when you trace it back in his family, was he, um, was he unusual in that respect, or is there a history in your family of, of, of individuals with that kind of character trait? Um, no, he was unusual in that sense as a, on a, as a commerce. His parents actually, um, his father was quite a famous surgeon who invented various um, medical instruments, um, and they wanted him to go and become professor at Cambridge to stay on and go into academia. So my father really sort of stepped away and went into commerce, which upset them. My mother's side, there's there's quite a commerce um, uh, mm. area. Um, so he, yeah, he didn't come from that that side of things, and I, and I think they were never a very um, uh, commercial family, really, from the backing. It wasn't about owning things. Um, so yeah, I, I would say not. So do I pick out from you that it is? So you talk about the two schools of businessmen about the money, about the life experience. So am I right? Uh, hopefully, I'm right in thinking that your father was about life experience. Yeah. Um, has that translated? for you personally as well yes i think it has i think you sort of you, you i think as being a businessman you need to you know money is a goal obviously you're you're trying to build profits you're trying to um, build up value the whole time um but i can't i i can't relate to billionaires who want to carry on making more billions to me that just just I don't understand that. Why would you want to make more money when you have that much money? Why don't you go and work for charity, create jobs on a different level and do other things? So um, really, you know, and we could run Bremer in a very different way mm -hmm. um, if we wanted to make more money. Um, so yes, we have to build value. We have shareholders. Mm -hmm. But I don't wake up in the morning wanting to be a billionaire. That's interesting, yeah. I, I, you know, because I, I think I meet so many where that is the the, the goal. It yeah. is a, it is purely a financial metric. It's you know when you talk about success, so it's um, and hence the question because I'm I'm curious because I don't know the answer because I I've met, you know, if you if you had to say, the, the, out of all the businessmen I've met, probably eighty percent, ninety percent are just purely focused on the money, um, you know, and, and a few, uh, you know, it's life experience. If you Look at the classic entrepreneur. You, you, you meet in your business lots of people that have built some interesting businesses, brands. Um, are entrepreneurs born um, or are they made? Is it an environmental thing, do you think? I think entrepreneurs is something setting out from nothing. I think you're probably born into that. And yeah, my father was very entrepreneurial. You know, I used to make money at school by doing various things. Um, and, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs just aren't very good at working for other people i mean i think i'm pretty much unemployable working for someone else um i think your your attention span is quite short i think you you really want to go and achieve something that is is almost impossible and you know when we set out everyone thought we were mad to do what we're doing and mm. they kept saying that but I think if you're you're strong willed as an entrepreneur that actually you look through all of that. Mm. Um, but also you, know, you you have to, as an entrepreneur, start at an age where you've got less to lose. Um, once you've got all those mortgage payments and families and school fees and everything else starting up on your own, it suddenly makes life a lot harder. Yeah, I mean that risk element is is an important element, isn't it? You know, because it. Cause it, it <laughs> A lot of entrepreneurs have rolled the dice and actually put everything that they own 
on the line. Uh, we'll come to that a little bit later on. Um, just coming back to your sort of, you know, your upbringing. Um, where did you grow up? So I grew up in uh, Cambridge and then moved to Norfolk. Right. So, um, yeah, I've always sort of loved the countryside. Um, and then went to university in Southampton. Yeah. Uh, studied engineering and naval architecture. Always okay. wanted to design boats. Right. Um, and uh, didn't. Um, <laughs> what kind of boats? Uh, I always just loved sailing boats. But then yeah. I did three years sort of... Uh, working out stress calculations on our bulkheads on supercarriers. Didn't see a single sailing boat. So my love of naval <laughs> architecture slightly got lost. And uh, um, But I think, um, yeah, that, that engineering side of it has, has definitely helped my career. Um, I then got asked to go and join the city for a corporate finance outfit to go okay. and um, analyse um, engineering businesses that they were listing on the stock market, okay. which... Um, I hated city life. It just wasn't for me. Mm. Um, but I learned a hell of a lot. You mm. know, I think you know, learning to read a balance sheet at quite early in your career is, is incredibly useful yeah. Uh, yeah. technique. And, um, and and looking at other businesses, what makes a business successful and not. Um, if, you, if you've looked at enough businesses, you, you suddenly get a steer for things. Yeah. And what age was that? You... So I, I went and did that in my um, uh, early 20s. Right, okay. And then um, dad had died uh, when I was uh, in 95, so I was 21, 22 at the time. Yeah. And with Nick and the plane crash, um, they were flying in a historical um, 1940s mm. aircraft, practicing for an air display, and all went horribly wrong. And um, Nick amazingly survived that, that experience. And he uh, went into hospital for many months. He, mm. um, he shouldn't have survived, but he did. And he was finishing off at um, uh, his accountancy and he was doing a little bit in the city. And my father had this little aviation business, mm. um, restoring old aircraft. And it was more of a hobby of his. Mm. But it had uh, a chunk of family money in it. And my mother was finding it very stressful. So Nick and I left to go and run that business. And we we realized that we worked together quite well mm. um, we got a good idea of running a very complicated business. I'm, uh, yeah, historical aircraft, the licensing and the everything that goes into that. Um, but we also quickly realised it was a business that was never really going to make any money whatsoever, but as long as it didn't lose money. Um, why not? I'm curious. I mean, just you know, in terms of you know that particular line of business, is it not knowing an awful yeah. lot about it? Why, why, why couldn't you make a lot of money? Well, I, what we realised, you know, it's all about the size of market. So in whatever you're in, you can have the best product, but if that market is only a finite size, there are only so many um, historical aircraft owners in the UK. Um, they only want to spend so much on their aircraft. Um, so you have to be the best of the best and have a unique angle to it, but it's just a small market. Mm. And you know, people spend money on their houses, their kids' school fees, their car, um, you know, their meals out, their wife's presents, and that their spending on their aircraft come at the very end of that. <laughs> so unless you've got a few sort of billionaire sugar daddies who you're managing their collection of historical aircraft, um, yet I was charging um, half the price of the local Volvo garage for servicing, right. <laughs> working on a Spitfire that may have taken me six months to find a component for. So, right, right. so fundamentally, it was never going to be a, a very successful business. Um, but Nick and I realized we could work together 
very well and and um so we did and then um it sort of started from there it's a fascinating one just how that all unpicked and obviously uh, you know it was obviously with a, with a, an accident that that's serious um i'd imagine because i mean that's not the first accident i know you you know you had a, a also you know a fairly recent accident flying but before we you, the pilot, both of you fly, yeah. And, and you know, had that been something you'd done at university in terms of the the air squadron, or you joined, you know, with a, with a, did you have a view to become a, a pilot, or was that just something you, you enjoyed? Um, it was. Yeah, we were both sponsored through um, university by the air squadron, mm. so we did a lot of flying with RAF. Um, I'd grown up. Yeah, I could fly about the same week as I could drive. So you know, we just grew up around planes. We had an airstrip at home. Um, constantly there were planes going in and out and and nick and i were just in this lovely position of flying these amazing old things mm. so it was just that was our life and um when we were going through university air squadron both nick and my at that time they were cutting down the raf i i loved the flying but the thought of coming out of the raf in seven years time after and not knowing what I was going to do and I didn't want to be an airline pilot I've loved the fast jet stuff mm, mm. and really I I, I love business as well I always had this sort of deep desire to build something mm. and um, and I met my wife at university so you know going off being pasted around the world I don't think that would have been an ideal solution <laughs> uh, and, and the RF cutting down on frontline pilots at yeah. that time so we didn't and and I loved old aircraft and I had all the flying I wanted to with dad and Nick. And uh, so we had this lovely sort of band of brothers and father flying off to air displays and, and, and flying these beautiful old things. So, But our life changed massively when that crash happened. But mm. the desire to keep flying was very much there. And, um, mm. and you know, 20 years later, I then had a plane crash myself and broke my back in three places and my knees and ankles and nose and various other bits. So that's flying an old gypsy moth and the engine stopped. Um, so, yeah, you've, we've, we've lived through a few aviation instances. <laughs> it's funny, you know, sorry, the golden rule of podcast is not to talk too much about myself. But, you know, I nearly joined the RAF at 21. I was, I was literally, I, there was a piece of paper in front of me with a, with a, a signature that was required. I spent a week at RAF Wittering. Yeah, and, and the idea being that I signed a piece of paper and in I go, and uh, I didn't join. So I decided that uh, for two reasons. One is that getting up at six o'clock in the morning, I thought was just quite, you know, unpleasant, and and, and they wanted me to cut my hair. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't have gone down well. And yeah, those two extremely important reasons <laughs> I decided <laughs> not to join the RAF. But um, so, okay, so you, you uh, can I just the business when you say you were interested in business. Really, at what age did you properly think? Actually, I am genuinely interested in this stuff. I'm curious about this because, you know, you could have, with the background you've got, you could have got a job working for somebody else. You know, it didn't necessarily have to lead into commerce, did it? No, but I, I think when you, my father, um, he was an entrepreneur, so it sort of gets ingrained into you that you can go and do anything. And my, yeah, and he was very open my father he used to sort of pay us our pocket money a year in advance and you can blow it all um or you could go and invest in it. and i bought old cars and sold them i used to run parties and and i just thought it's such a lovely way to make your own money and build your own things so it was very much 
felt totally natural to me and I got a kick real kick out of it mm. um, so but I could have gone yeah I would have made probably more money going to the city and doing doing that sort of mm. thing um, but it did feel very natural to, to do it and I, and I think that that whole idea of the adventure behind it to me is really exciting so you went into with your brother Nick so you've got this business repairing old vintage aircraft so obviously something's happened between then and, and you know and Bremont coming out of you know nothing as yeah. it were so I, obviously the stuff that we can read in the website but what were the real sort of seeds of all of that happening for you so, so really the seeds um, were as kids you know one of my passions my father had was watches and clocks and my mm. grandfather loved his clocks um, so we'd always loved it mm. and as pilots um, time is everything when you're flying it's all about your watch when do I take off how much fuel have I got till I run out when do I land ETAs and all the rest of it mm. um, so we'd always been into watches as a family my father had collected watches and being around the aviation world that sort of grew and Nick and I are working together and realizing we're in this this space that wasn't ever really going to make a lot of money for us um, we so sort of slowly hatched the plans of building our own watches mm. and we're also incredibly aware of this amazing history of British watchmaking mm. so mm. everyone thinks Swiss made Swiss made but Turn of the century, we're making half the world's watches. Was it right? Yeah. yeah, Rolex was found in Clerkenwell. Um, <laughs> yeah, we we yeah. Yeah, set the world's time by Greenwich Mean Time, not Geneva Mean Time. So yeah. there's sort of this wonderful history of watchmaking. We saw there are no British brands, and if you think look back to '95 and you know, years after that, the watch industry was a very different place to where it was now. Mm. Um, it'd been hammered by the quartz um, uh, revolution in mm. the 80s um, and it was really picking itself back up it, mm. it was a growing state and Nick and I as keen enthusiasts had sort of seen the the bubbles of, of growth mm. and then when we looked at the industry size mm. uh, we saw that you know the I think it was 600 pounds above watch market in the UK it was worth 800 million in just the UK so we saw that mm. and knowing our background we thought actually I th yeah we don't have to have a big share of that market to have a nice little business sure um but it has to be done with integrity it has to be a really good product um so we we went out to switzerland we had some friends out there uh and we set on this sort of crusade to to, to build watches and we in terms of you know, because at that time I know that you know, as we move on, you know, there's a time where of course it, it, it took years to incubate. Um, so, how much time you're obviously doing other work at that time, even for yourself, you yep. know, repairing old aircraft. So, how much you know money did you invest? How much time? Because obviously at th that stage, you know, you had no idea what it might become. Um, were you moonlighting, or were you throwing all of your time into this? I mean, how much of a commitment had you both made at right at that moment in time? I think on day one we we hedged our bets a bit and we had some little business interests which were producing a bit of cash coming in um but then quickly we realized we needed to really throw ourselves into it um and we thought originally probably two and a half years 
we could do it. It was going to take, you know, that's a long time, but we would fund that all and that would give us a you know, collection of watches we could launch with. Um, and this was in about uh, 97. Mm. Um, and we didn't sell our first watch till 92 in the end, in 2002 in the end. So it was five years. Yeah. So we got to the stages about three, three and a half, four years into it. And it was just taking so much longer. And yeah. yes, we had still little bits on the side, but we're spending a lot of time in Switzerland. Yeah. Um, the first watch was the Martin Baker. Was that right? No, it was, was no Martin Baker came a few years later. Oh, okay, okay. Um, yeah. So um, uh, we, yeah, we threw everything into it. Um, uh, and finally, you know, sorry, started in 2002 mm-hmm. doing that. Looking at my dates right here, and we started um, selling in uh, 2009. Right. So, no, sorry, 2007. Dates all over the place here. That's what you said. Yeah. I can remember that. Yeah, yeah. Two, <laughs> no, 2002 um, started, and then 2007 we sold our first watch. And the, the really, really hard bit for us came about three and a half, four years into it because we hadn't sold a watch there. At that mm. stage, we'd both mortgaged our houses. Right. We put a lot of money into it. Um, the kids, you know, we'd have both had kids. They were still young, but you know, your costs start mounting. Um, and that was the really, really quite a scary stage for us. Um, and then we uh, were ready to launch in 2007. And that was exciting because mm. we, we had a collection mm. we were ready to go. Um, but in hindsight, actually, the, the length it took meant when we actually finally launched is probably more successful than we had originally thought because we'd built up demand. Yeah. Um, we'd been speaking to journalists and for years and ambassadors and interesting people. So there was quite a, a swell of knowledge about us. Um, so when we actually started selling, the demand was higher than we originally thought. But that, that five years was a hard time. Did you ever... I'm interested to know just in that nub of how a business is created because, you know, nobody has an idea. It's what, you know, I always have this, this, this fascination with history in the sense that, you know, history always looks like it's a straight line. When you look at life in reverse, it looks as if certain sequence of events were meant to be, mm. you know, and decision A led to decision B, and actually sometimes it's a bit messier than that. In real life, that's how it happens. So were there any... In that, in that particular period, in that five years, did either of you or Nick actually think, we can't make it, we're not going to make it, or you uh, lost heart in it? No, I think we never lost heart and we were going to do it, whatever. I think the pain really kicked in. Mm. You know, when your wife is saying, what are you doing, you idiots, go and get a proper job, and uh, all of that sort of stuff, and you do have those deep conversations and the slight doubts kicks in as to, you know, will this actually work and be successful? But I think, you know, for us, you get to a stage where you um, say, well, you, you, you can't give up. Mm. And I think as a, you know, my view in life as a, as a businessman and an entrepreneur is that it's very, very easy to give up and say it's just not going to work and, and, and you give up. Mm. Um, and you know, if you're in Silicon Valley, their whole view is if you're going to fail, fail fast, and yeah. you know, cut the money and, and yeah. move off. But actually, you know, that perseverance I think gets you through 
that failure line and that really sorts you out because nothing's going to work straight away it doesn't but if you if you've got the right idea and the market's big enough for you um, it really is about doing it a few percent better than the next guy mm. and positioning it correctly um, and often if you rush this stuff um, it's, it, it doesn't come out correctly it's sort of it's too much of a flash in the pan at the time, you know, I know you know the, the brand has gone on to you know, frankly speaking, global global success. But at the time, you'll have no doubt wanted to punch above your weight. But there've been times where you were doing things, you know, whether it's persuading Tom Cruise to wear your watch or whether it would be to, um, you know, promote the brand in its infancy. How much of a, you know, how did you go about that? How did you start that? Because there's a, there's a point at which all businesses start almost in the bedroom, you know, and, and yeah. you think actually you're doing things which you know, you don't have the volume of business at that time to perhaps substantiate a reputation. So, yeah, I think the you know, ultimately, and, and I think with any any successful product, the the journalists or friends or anyone else, when they picked up our watch, they had to um, pick it up and go, well, actually, for the price point, this is lovely. This mm. is really good quality, good value. And I really like the design of it. You know, ultimately, you have to have a good product. Yeah. And we knew when we had these journalists who are going, well, I've never heard of you before. And they know anything really about English watchmaking. But actually, this is we like the quality of this watch. Mm. And, and I think we, once you got that tick in the box, mm. and we were getting those ticks, that you knew that whoever you showed it to, whether it was a Tom Cruise or... Charlie Borman, Ewan McGregor on their trips, mm. that um, that they would like the product, and that mm. is ninety percent of it. Yeah. And and also we weren't a major brand, and if you think, look at the watch industry, it's taken up by three big, four big groups: Richemont, Swatch, um, Caring, and LVMH, and then a few big independents: Rolex, Patek, Breitling's mm. type type things. So it's it taken up by the big boys and they're massive marketing machines. Mm. We were um, really, we were obviously the start before the hipster brands came on, but we were doing something different. Um, we weren't a, a, a major brand in that. Um, and it really was the start of the internet where you could build brands because you have internet blogs, whereas 10 years earlier, you didn't really have that. Mm. Um, uh, so we felt there was a swell, and and if you're if you're cool and doing something different, people are attracted to you. Mm. But you have to cause that attraction. Did and you? Uh, sorry to cut across you there. In terms of your ambitions at that stage, you know, in that sort of again coming up to the first five years and, and cutting to now, have your ambitions, both yourself and Nick, have your ambitions changed in terms of what you want or wanted to achieve? Have you scaled up or scaled down, or has it always been constant in what you wanted to achieve? I think you, when you set out, your ambitions are are great. Otherwise, you you wouldn't do it. Whether you real realistically think you can hit that level and and um, at at a point of, of speed that you want is a different thing. I think there are several key key growth stages that we hit quite quickly and quite easily. So you're on a you're on a high, um, but you also it's. I don't think you ever you hit your figures or what you want to do and the next year you just your ambitions just grow don't they and it's sort of mm. it's a never ending um 
I'm, we launched in 2007, um, and then you had 2008, the crisis come along, so we went through all of that, and then you, you, you get these big you know, kicks yeah. um, that you have to get through. And, and, I, and, and the bigger you get, you know, when, when we started bringing all the watchmaking back to the UK mm. um, uh, and training up watchmakers, suddenly you have to be a chunk bigger to justify all that investment. Mm. Then we started doing machining of components over here, and that's the next stage of massive investment. Mm. And so it is a challenge all around. Um, mm. And I think where we are as a as a business, you keep you need to keep growing mm. to keep that it just for justifiable that investment. And uh, you know we set out to build build up watchmaking again in the UK, and, yeah. and that's no easy thing. No, it's not. And I know it's not because, you know, there's a plethora of, of brands and I call them brands because, you know, they're probably, you know, sort of micro brands. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that, that also have grand ambitions, um, but simply don't get lift off. You know, they don't they don't get and have done. That's what's remarkable about Bremont because, you know, you have got a lift off and then some. Just I'm thinking about people that might be starting their own businesses or running their own businesses. Yeah. And, you know, because you, you've got some great ambassadors, um, some very, you know, sort of A-list people. Um, and I actually don't know the answer to this. You know, is it that, you know, when you grew up that you had all these A-listers coming in your home and, and they just happened to be personal friends and, and they were on the end of your speed dial, you know, or, or when you were sort of cooking this business up, did you and Nick have to sit and go, actually, we don't really know Tom Cruise, um, but we wanted to wear our watch because we think he's a cool guy. Um, so how did, you, how, how, did this, you, how did you make this happen? You, uh, we didn't have this amazing you know network and we we weren't it boys of london to go and get all this so that that wasn't i i think if you've got the right product i reiterate this if mm. people want to be associated because they think that product's cool mm. you can reach out to them you can reach out to them through their pas or friend a friend a friend a um you know your if you hire the right press team um, you can do an element of that. We had some lucky breaks, and mm. um, and Tom Cruise he he flew into our airfield um, uh, about a week before Dad died, right. and uh, he sat in Dad's Spitfire, um, and after Dad died, um, uh, he sent a very kind note mm. to our family saying, "Look, if I can help with anything, um, I heard about." the accident um please shout and so that that was a, a you know, contact and and when nick went and lived in in la to help grow the business in the u.s mm-hmm. um that relationship got rekindled but um uh i think you know start going out starting brand mm-hmm. if that product's good enough mm-hmm. it will get interest it'll get those um, Esquires or GQs writing about it because they think it's cool. Um, yeah. They think it's different. Yeah. Um, or, or you know, if if it's not men's or you know, mm. women's fashion, whatever, or trade, yeah. if you've got to have a good product, and then then you'll find people attract you. And you have to be likable people. You have to be open. You have to be very um, uh, integral in the way you you deal with these people. Um, and, I've, uh, and it's not it's just not impossible mm. I think the challenges come how do you do that get out there make those contacts mm. while running your 
job your day job yeah. and your yeah. business and we were lucky there were two of us mm. so obviously nick and i were out out doing our thing um so that made it easier than just a loner you know setting up your own business mm. um and i had a partner with nick that you know there was obviously a backstory in, in mm. how we got there in the first place um out of, sort of diversity um, comes this business um but I think people sort of thought we're slightly crazy of what we're trying to do and, and you play up on that and <laughs> and I think you know the back to the you know and if you've got press writing about you that generates some interest yeah. and what we've learned from press over the years is that you know you can go to your PR agent and say give me some press and it never works mm -hmm. that story has to be generated by you you have yeah. to be able to tell that story yeah. and then then it works you introduced me to a phrase, and I, it stuck with me actually. Two by two marketing. I'm not sure if you remember. Yeah, that. yeah. You, you did. You did because I, I love the, you know, I like simple approaches to to, to business, and and you know, you were talking about two by two marketing. You remember that? Right? Yes, I do. Yeah. And, and could you just tell me what you mean by two by two marketing? Just well, well, first tell me how you read it. Well, I I mean basically it was a, you know what I took it by a two by two piece of wood. So if you're in England, piece of wood, two inch by two inch or whatever, two centimeter. But basically, you know, a, a simple, Whack it over the head. A, yeah, basically a, a, a clear message yeah. and just repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. Um, was we, how I took it. No, exactly. And we learned that you have a story and 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 you think or a message and you think everyone's heard it because you've read about it a hundred yeah. times yourself. But then when actually when you go out and ask someone, no one's heard it. So it, it really was that hammering home your key messages. So as a brand, mm. what do you really stand for? And and I think as you grow, that gets more complicated mm. because you you waver off that in some element or you have things that take you in different directions. But it really was having that key message and, and banging it over the head. And yeah, that two by two, and then we have the three times rule in our business that it always takes three times longer. Right. always costs three times more and yeah. is always three times more effort and i think if you go into you're running your business with those two two key attributes and they that three times rule is quite important though because it, it will cost you three times more than you originally think it will do yeah. Yeah. it just does and and if you're not prepared for that you'll die because yeah. um it's never as quick as you originally mm. hoped um and that message just seeps in and you, your, your challenges now and, and the way the world's changed and back in when we started it was everyone you know you you had a page in the telegraph and sales would roll in directly opposite um directly after you know, telegraph circulation is half since 2010 yeah so how are you going to get that message out well yeah. then you've got you've got social media yes that's great but still it's for a younger demographic it's yeah. not particularly luxury in that audience does it actually sell watches um so mm. it, you know, it's a it's a changing world out there it is and we were talking about the markets changing you know i know that i've got a friend out in hong kong who's uh, you know runs a very big wine company it's a london-based wine company but they sell a huge volume of high-end wines in hong kong mainly into china you know, and the market for that has dropped by seventy-five percent because of the uh, the gift giving or lack of gift giving yeah. rule in China. So, you know, overnight, you know, their revenues have gone from tens of millions of US dollars down to a smaller number. You know, and uh, and those are game changers. You know, that can really change a business. But before um, financing, briefly, you know, a lot of businesses, of course, you know, they they take on board financing to grow. Um, what have you learned from that, from 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 Bremelt's experience? 
Finance is, in, is a hard one because in hindsight, you would never, if you're successful, you'd never have taken on any finance because um, you don't at 100%. Yeah. Um, but at, if it's a success, but at the time, um, one, you don't know it's going to be a success. Um, and from our perspective, we, we sit ever since very early days on, on a lot of stock. Mm. You know, these components cost a lot of money. Um, you need stock, otherwise you can't build your watches. And that's a very expensive um, uh, process. You can't go and borrow all that money against banks. They just won't lend it to you, which mm. is a real downside. Yeah. Um, so you have to raise money. And, and we, quite early in our process, realized that we needed to raise that money. Um, and if we get some good guys on who could help us as well as a business and give advice. Mm. Um, but ultimately, um, it was about raising that money. So we did that. and. Ideally, Nick and I would own 100% of this business, um, but it wasn't going to be the case on, on pretty much day one. It's difficult, isn't it? I mean, to be a global brand and you know to be the size of Bremont and to have that penetration in all different markets, there's no way you have to have some money to do that. You know, that's to do that organically in the period of time you've done it. You know, bearing in mind the com competition that you you, you may have uh, and the depth of their budget which runs into you know huge sums of money it, it, it actually is an impossible task to do that i mean you can maybe run a micro brand or something but yeah no I, th I think it's it it you're right and you're you're taking on too much personal risk yeah. if you're if you're going to do that and i think um uh you to grow a business uh you need to invest yeah. um you can't take profits when you're growing a business because you won't get that growth afterwards you won't be investing in in everything when you you know i th i think your business you go through different stages i think getting to two million turnovers are a really hard slog mm. you hit that two million and then suddenly you get a bit of a, a a burst and life comes a bit easier then you have your five million barrier then you have your 10 million barrier and then 10 million you're you're very profitable um because what you haven't done is invest in the systems or the mm. team to get to that next stage and that's when you suddenly realize you need very expensive IT systems and stock control systems. You need, you know, rather than a bookkeeper FD, you need a proper FD. You need operations guys, experienced people to take you onto that next level. And, and then so suddenly, and your marketeers and all that mm. sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and I think you, it's, it's very easy to underinvest in early days and get away with it. It's sticky tape and, 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 <laughs> uh, and keep your costs down um but but yeah that that develops on and i think where we didn't make life easy for ourselves mm. and, that, and a couple of reasons why we didn't one manufacturing in the uk um there's still a lot further we want to go on that but that's cost us a lot of money to do mm -hmm. but we felt actually we'd never properly grow without that um but also we went into our own retail so we've got four of our own stores predominantly a wholesale business but we mm. wanted to invest in our own stores mm. Um, and we do our own distribution around the world. So, um, Bramwell America, we sell mm. Bramwell America. In a easier world, you just go through a distributor. You would um, uh, get him to commit to a thousand watches a year and grow your brand. Mm. Um, but the reason why we stayed away from distribution is that we felt that 
it's a bit of a flawed model because they never quite make enough money mm. um, to properly invest in your brand. So it never quite gets to that stage. And when they're having a hard time, they'll just go and flog your product cheaply, and right. and and yeah. um, and if you're they're not making the margin, then they can't invest. They are making the margin um, where you can't do it in our business because mm. there isn't that much margin to be made to give them a big chunk, and and it's very easy to get that turnover going, but not making that much money. Um, so it's a sort of yeah, but that's the natural way to grow any brand around the world is go through distribution. Um, mm. And we've been very lucky that we didn't because in the last three years, with the slowdown in China that was taking out probably 40% of global watch sales in China and Hong Kong, mm. that's gone down by probably at least 50% in the last you know, three or four years. Yeah. And those, if you're a distributor out there, you're just going to be dumping stock cheap on the internet or elsewhere. Yeah. Whereas we didn't have any of that problem. We've had very little bad debt because mm. we've done it ourselves. All of those sorts of key key issues. Mm. Taking just a slightly different tact, I'm just briefly be the man behind the scenes. So work-life balance. I, I, you know, when I meet people, I meet all sorts of different flavors. The ones that work 60 hours a week, you know, and, and never go home and... and and I don't know with you. I, you know, I get a flavour that you and Nick have, a, you know, a reasonable work-life balance. But you know, it's only just an impression. Um, what, what's the well, real truth? Uh, the real truth <laughs> is actually we don't. We enjoy life right. um, outside work, um, and we make the most of it. And I'm one of these guys that I could retire tomorrow and have lots of fun because I have lots of hobbies. I have a workshop, and I love old planes and cars and motorbikes, and yeah, so I could I could fill myself. I'm not one of these guys who would sit at home moping because they've lost all their hobbies um but the nature of us as a company is that we've grown because nick and i are the ambassadors we're going out mm. meeting people talking to people we're growing our brand and if you're trying to do that globally um you need to do a lot of travel mm. and and that's the downside to nick and i we very rarely spend time at a desk you're on a plane to asia or australia or us and 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 that takes it out of you because you you're away a lot mm -hmm. so in that sense our work-life balance is, is pretty poor mm -hmm. um but we do enjoy life outside and and we're lucky because you know it's it's a fun job mm -hmm. um but yeah it's not without its stresses and physical risk because i mean I, I think that's uh you know, when I, I met you guys a few years ago, you know, I know that you, you know, you, you were flying, uh, Nick flies, you know, Nick enjoys motorbikes, you enjoy motorbikes. I didn't know that before, but I do know it now. Um, and, and actually, it's funny because I, you know, I also ride bikes as well. So the, 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 I often have the debate with myself as much as anybody else as to what physical risk, because of course, one's appetite for physical risk tends to diminish as you get older. Yeah. It shifts, it changes. Um, how do you... How did the accident change your your view on physical risk? Has it changed your outlook at all? Yeah, no, it, it has actually. Um, but really, it was more to my family than my personal issues. Mm. Um, I met my wife two months before Dad died in a plane crash, mm. um, uh, and she lived through my plane crash. Mm. So that's three people: my father, my brother, and myself that she knew very well who. She's had to live through plane crashes. So without doubt, she's, she has a real phobia against me flying. And, and um, I've got young children. Mm. 
so I think probably it's more to them. My view on life is, well, when when you're going to be taken, you're going to be taken, and I have as much likelihood of getting cancer or getting run over off the pavement or or mm. something else nasty than dying in a plane crash. And yeah. if if my time's up, my time's up. And what I my father's view is is you know you've got to live life and these sorts of buzzes of you on your motorbike or flying an old plane gives you so much enjoyment it's equivalent to five years life because it's the buzz is so good right. now it's a very selfish way of looking at life though that's that's the downside it doesn't help help your children or your wife mm. um and that's that's the balance that is is difficult yeah it's I th- you know, my personal view is it's very easy to live a sanitized life, you know, to actually de-risk, as you as you might say, it, to, yeah. not, to not do anything that, that is that is remotely, you know, perceived as being risky. Um, but you wouldn't start a business. <laughs> you wouldn't start a business. Yeah. And you wouldn't ride a motorbike and you wouldn't fly a plane. Um, so tell me, advice to your 25-year-old. Everybody makes mistakes. Uh, I've got a whole book of them. Uh, oh, of which course. Which I'm occasionally reminded of. Um, so, what, you know, really, if you went back and you were sat here, you're 25-year-old self, and we all disappeared out, no microphones, you know, what advice would you give him? It's quite interesting. I sort of, I, one, I'm not one to have regrets. Um, I would say uh, go for it. I think when you see opportunities, opportunities don't stay around. So you've got to grab them and really go for it. Um, I think you can probably, your pace of growth um, can be even quicker. I think you can you can sit back and uh, miss opportunities because mm. you you um, are slightly scared about that speed of growth. And when that opportunity is there, you really have to milk it because it may not be there in the future. Um, but you know, I've certainly enjoyed every every minute of it. I would have um, uh, taken on investment. I would have viewed that differently and. You know, really, um, really question why you're taking on that mm. investment in the first place, and and take your time over that. Mm. It's very easy to give away equity, and yeah. it's very difficult to get it back. Yeah. Um, that's something I would consider. Um, surround yourself with some really good people, mm. um, and advice is cheap. Mm. And also, never be afraid to ask. Um, classic story: I always say, if you're a retailer, a budding retailer, and there's a brand you aspire to um, and you want to know and you, you know, the easiest thing you can ever do is walk into that shop and ask the store manager. You can ask him any question, how many of you do you sell each month, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And you'd be amazed how often they give you the answers. So it's it's really having that um, that ability to, to ask and never accept no as a as an answer. Um, and and it, it comes and and you think there are a lot of people out there who want you to succeed. Um, but I think stay true to yourself as well. I mean, mm-hmm. we, where we've made errors in the past is because we haven't listened to ourselves. And right. uh, But not everyone's going to like you. You can't live life thinking that everyone loves you. You know, And when we design our watches, we design for ourselves mm-hmm. so people similar to us would, would want to buy them. You, you start trying to design watches for every bit of the market out there. You become bland. Yeah. because you become a sort of something for who's trying to please everyone um, so I think that's it's really stay true to yourself and and also believe in yourselves it's very easy to to lose that belief mm. and then you waver and you yeah. start listening to other people who you shouldn't listen to um, 
and you know being an entrepreneur you have to be pig-headed mm-hmm. because if you don't get that you know that that you know, no one else is going to get your vision yeah. so you just have to go for it because yeah. um, you've thought about it a hundred times more than anyone else yeah yeah that's good advice I got, I'm very mindful of your time because you've been, you know, frankly speaking, I could sit here for the next two hours and I, 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 could, I could, you know, run this. I've got one final question for you. Yeah. Um, is there a, are you somebody that, um, you know, has a quote, something that you live your life by, something that means something to you, whether it be, you know, some of the stuff you've talked about? Is there anything that comes to mind where, you know, just resonates with you as a, as a, as a quote or a thought or a, an ideology that you think, yes, it gives you strength, it could be anything? I think, um, as my father's quote, which was, it's better to live life and lose it than never live life at all. And I think with that is basically go out and enjoy yourselves. It's, it's not about money, it's about living life. And, and if, you, um, you know, if you're doing something you're not enjoying, move on, you know, because there's more to it. And, and if you're passionate about something, you can make it so much more successful mm-hmm. than something you're not passionate about. Um, and you can go and do anything. You can achieve anything. You know, the world's your oyster. It takes a lot of hard work and making it slightly different from the next man. And if you if you're looking at something and you've set your heart on, but the um, uh, the figures and the you know the stats don't add up, you know, walk away from it. Yeah. But sorry, I answered in a very long round of route on that. Not at all. Yeah. So live life. <laughs> Charles English, thank you so much. Very gracious, and I shall uh, treasure this moment. And, uh, and 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 I love you, Nick. Too. There was not a reason I didn't ask you, but anyway, we'll send you an email and apologise later. Nick does very little around here, so it's probably best not to get him. <laughs> Justin, thank you very much. You're welcome. Love thank to see you, you Charles. Well, I personally found that quite a fascinating interview, and I picked up various hints that I shall be using not just in my own business endeavours, um, but sharing with my various. Uh, companies that I know of that I help from time to time. So listen, uh, this has been the Building British Brands podcast. I'm Justin Levine. Thanks for stopping by. Bye now.